On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, LD here from Rock and Roll Heaven, along with TJ. And we just wanted to throw a parental warning on the opening of this episode, specifically because it does include scenes of violence and adult language. So a parental warning is advised. And some mature themes. There are some mature themes. You're yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. But it's mainly the language. Mainly the language. We're sorry. Couldn't be helped. You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ. Oh, hey. TJ. Yeah. How was your week? Pass. Okay. <laughs> how was your week? <laughs> I got to see uh, John Wick. Yeah? And, and it was a lot of fun. I had a good time. Um, I'm not going to do a movie review, so... <laughs> Fair enough. But I will say the stunts and the fight sequences were awesome. So if, you know, you're on the fence about going to see it and you just need to like float away for two hours and ten minutes, go see it. It's not a bad film. We haven't seen any movies in the Wick franchise, but we did go to uh, Sylvain this weekend. That was fun. What was that? Um, so Sylvain, for those of you on the West Coast or for LD, it's um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's this little Danish town in like up by santa barbara in the wine country we did not do any wine tasting we just basically went up for a quick overnight and then wandered around the town for a little bit the next morning and then made our way back home like real fast so it was like quick we were home i think we left here friday at like 3 30 ish and then got back saturday at five like (laughs) Quick little trip, but I did get to go see the Hans Christian Andersen Museum. They have like oh, a that's really, awesome. yeah, it's not like anything huge. It's really cute though, but it's um, it's like in the top floor of a bookstore. Oh, so that was fun. But uh, yeah, and then across the street they have the uh, Little Mermaid fountain. Is that why you keep singing the Little Mermaid song? I don't. I don't. I didn't mean to. Maybe unconsciously, I got it stuck in my head. I really don't know how it got there. It just did. Yeah. Speaking of songs that get stuck in your head, yeah. Who are we talking about today? So, I decided it had been a while since we've done a lady. So I picked the incomparable Miss Nina Simone for this week's episode. Very nice. I know very little about her life. And I know they've made a couple films about it, so... They have. There's a few different documentaries. Unfortunately, I did not have the time to watch them, but they're still in my queue and they will be watched. If you tuned in last week, you know kind of why I've not had as much time. Let me, let me, let me tell this, because you're going to get upset. Yeah. Uh, she had to say goodbye to her eight-year-old little friend, Iris, her Great Dane, and so... In the the words of Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. Ditto. So <laughs> that's why it was a hard pass on how my week was. But, you know, Friday, there yeah. was that. So, um, yeah, so I didn't 
get a ton of time to research, which I would have loved to have done more. This is somebody that I love her music and didn't really know quite as much about her life as I had wanted. So it was one that I kind of had earmarked that I really wanted to know more about. So the research will not stop here. I will be doing some more and who knows, maybe we'll do a follow-up episode or something. But but for now, we'll give you the highlights. So Nina Simone, she's an American singer, songwriter, musician, arranger, and civil rights activist. Born Eunice Kathleen Wayman as the sixth of eight children to a poor family in Tyron, North Carolina. Her mother was Mary Kate Wyman, nay Irvin. She was a Methodist minister and housemaid, and her father, Reverend John Devin Wayman, was a handyman who at one time owned a dry cleaning business, but also suffered bouts of ill health. And then since his he has a reverend in front of his name, I'm assuming he was also a reverend. That's that's I think that's a fair assumption. That would be so weird growing up because, number one, like, you've heard about the preacher's daughter, like, trope. Yeah. Could you imagine being the reverend and the preacher's daughter? Both your parents are, I mean, are you double trouble at that point? Or or did the two goods cancel out the negative and make you really good? Well, we're going to find out. Okay. (laughs) At least this one one case study, right? Right. (laughs) Simone began playing piano at the age of three or four, demonstrating a talent with the instrument she performed at her local church. Surprise, surprise. Her concert debut was a classical recital that was given when she was 12. So that was her, like, debut show. Yeah, and that's So she's kind of playing in church, but she would, but, like, while she was working on it. That's, like, eight years that she's been working on piano, so that must have been really good. Yeah. Simone later said that during this performance, her parents, who had taken seats in the front row, were forced to move to the back of the hall to make way for white people. Oh, no. Because this is in the 30s, this is 40, 45 now. She said that she refused to play until her parents were moved back to the front and that the incident contributed to her later involvement in the civil rights movement, which, as you'll learn as we go in, she was very heavily involved in. Good. We needed pioneers like her. Yes. Simone's music teacher helped establish a special fund to pay for her education. Because, again, this is a poor family. This is not a well-off family. Subsequently, a local fund was set up to assist her continued education. With the help of this scholarship money, she was able to attend Allen High School for Girls in Asheville, North Carolina. After her graduation, Simone spent the summer of 1950 at the Juilliard School as a student of Carl Friedberg, who's a noted pianist and and obviously teacher. From what I understand, Juilliard is a really good school. (laughs) Juilliard. (laughs) Yeah, I guess Juilliard's not so bad. I mean, if you got to go somewhere. Yeah, exactly. She studied with Friedberg, preparing for an audition at the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. However... Her application was denied. Only three of 72 applicants were accepted that year. But as her family had relocated to Philadelphia in the expectation of her entry to Curtis, the blow to her aspirations was particularly heavy. For the rest of her life, she suspected that her application had been denied of racial prejudice despite the school's denial. So all these things are going to kind of lead together in case you're not noticing this pattern yet. There, there are a few things in this world that make me angrier than racism, especially when it comes to music. 
Yeah. Like it's an art to be shared with everyone. And I know we're going to get into it with um, the Sammy Davis Jr. Mm-hmm. episode. Well, we've got, we've glazed on this a few different times too. So I know this is going to be a separate short set for us too, because we do both get really amped up about this. Because talent shouldn't have a color. Talent shouldn't have a sex. It, it shouldn't, shouldn't be defined. Shouldn't have an age. Yeah. Talent is talent and it, it needs to be given to people and it shouldn't Shared. be censored and it shouldn't be hidden. Agreed. I feel like I'm going to spend most of this episode just being really mad. Well, get it out now. Okay. And I kind of glossed over her education a little bit just in the interest of time and, and topic. I mean, she was an educated woman. This is somebody that, you know, as I mentioned, her town actually helped her and the people around her helped to support her education. So unlike some of the other people that we've talked about that set aside their education strictly to pursue music, she was not necessarily in that category. She was not really in that category at all. She was very heavily interested in her education and her classical studies. She studied a lot of classical music. Discouraged by her rejection, for lack of a better word, from Curtis, she took private piano lessons with Vladimir Sokolov, a professor at Curtis, but never could reapply due to the fact that at the time, Curtis Institute did not accept students over 21 years old. She took a job as a photographer's assistant, but also found work as an accompanist at Arlene Smith's vocal studio and taught piano from her home in Philadelphia. To fund her private lessons, Simone performed at the Midtown Bar and Grill on Pacific Avenue in Atlantic City, whose owner insisted that she sing as well as play the piano, which increased her income to $90 a week. So this is back in the early 50s. So in today's dollars... That's $850 a week, roughly, give or take. So that's not bad. That's pretty good, actually. In 1954 was when she adopted the stage name Nina Simone. Till this point, she is still going by Eunice. Nina was derived from the word Nina, which was a nickname given to her by her boyfriend at the time named Chico. And Simone was taken from the French actress, and I'm sorry if I butcher this, Simone Signore whom she had seen in the 1952 movie Cosque d'Or. Cosque d'Or? I'm not a French person, sorry. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> Knowing her mother would not approve of playing the, quote, devil's music, she used her new stage name to remain undetected. Simone's mixture of jazz, blues, and classical music in her performances at the bar earned her a small but loyal fan base. So that kind of answered that question about the preacher's daughter. Like, she just hid. <laughs> She's just like, uh-oh, let's make sure that they don't know me. <laughs> and there's no internet, so. Yeah. So until they hear through the grapevine or, or you know, becomes super duper famous, <laughs> they won't know. <laughs> and then maybe they'll just forgive her. <laughs> In 1958, she befriended and married a man named Don Ross, who was a beatnik who worked as a fairground barker but quickly regretted their marriage. <laughs> I kind of like the the fact that she married a fairground barker. I'm not going to lie. No, but he was a I, I kind of like He was this. a beatnik. He was a beatnik fairground barker. Fairground barker, which I mean, can I just I'm just picturing like a dude wearing like a turtleneck with a cigarette and a beret just being like, "Hey, cool cats, you want to play the rings?" <laughs> you get the ball in the fish bowl, you get to keep the fish. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> Playing in small clubs that same year, she recorded uh, George Gershwin's I Loves You Porgy from the, the musical Porgy and Bess, which she learned from a Billie Holiday album and performed as a favor to a friend. It became her only Billboard Top 20 success in the United States. And her debut album, Little Girl Blue, soon followed on Bethlehem Records. Can you believe that? For as much as we know, like, her music is everywhere still. And that is her only top 20 success in the U.S. I think we're going to have to do a short set on how Billboard gets its information. There There are these songs that we think of that are like huge hits that never charted. No. And so I'd really I'd really like to dive into how Billboard gets their numbers cuz I think it's like rec- record play, album sales, radio well, play, downloads and then they they're pulling it from all this and then that's how they decide what yeah, number but, 1 is. But two, I think songs like this that we deem to be iconic now maybe weren't as popular then and it's like it's a weekly thing. So if they're not ever like if they catch on but they're not ever selling massively any given week maybe that's the issue i'm not, not sure not to argue with you but bohemian rhapsody has hit number one on the charts three times right and it's been in three different decades so i don't think there's a time limit on when something can hit the charts that is true and more on that later in the story <laughs> uh unfortunately so this is kind of a cover thing right so simone lost more than a million dollars in royalties notably for the 1980s re-release of her version of the jazz standard my baby just cares for me (laughs) and never benefited financially from the album sales because she had sold her rights outright for three thousand dollars so this is the overall album little girl blue wow yeah it was kind of like the guy the third founder of apple that sold off his shares for 800 bucks like right he didn't know what apple was going to become so probably she didn't think at that point that it was going to go anywhere and three thousand dollars goes a long way when you're a poor musician at the time you know yeah and just trying to make it work exactly after the success of little girl blue simone signed a contract with colpix records and recorded a multitude of studio and live albums Colpix relinquished all creative control to her, including the choice of material that would be recorded in exchange for her signing the contract with them, which is a big deal. Yeah. Like to be able to pick all your own stuff and have all the creative control. That's not something that happens all the time. It's very rare. You have to, they have to really want you to give up that control. Well, if you go back to TLC, like the TLC episode, they were under heavy, heavy, heavy-handed yeah. management, and they were basically only producing what they were allowed to produce. Yep. That happens a lot until that, you're a star, and then you can renegotiate. But even then, you know, that's TLC was in the 90s. Yeah. They were trying, and that's not that long ago. Right. Oh, yeah. No, that's why I say this is kind of a big deal. So if it seems like it's not a big thing and that it would be like, oh, well, duh, like she should have creative control. No. It is not something that happens all the time. Yeah, you just don't you don't get to produce what you want. I mean, same thing happened to Patsy Cline. Mm-hmm. She wanted to do this one particular kind of music, and they're like, "No, you're going to do this kind." And but it kind of worked out better for her in that for that particular instance. Yeah, but still, I mean, it's the same. You know, yeah. she had exactly the opposite of Nina. Yeah. 
So jumping back to the story, after the release of her live album, Nina Simone at Town Hall, Simone became a favorite performer in Greenwich Village. By this time, Simone performed pop music only to make money to continue her classical music studies and was indifferent about having a recording contract. She kept this attitude toward the record industry for most of her career. So again, like this is not the first person that we've had in the situation where they're like, meh, okay, sure. I'll have a recording contract. Why not? So somewhere in here during this time, I'm guessing she got divorced from Don because in 1961, Simone married New York police detective Andrew Stroud. And he later became her manager and the father of her daughter, Lisa. But he abused Simone psychologically and physically. So no bueno there. So in case you're wondering why there's not as much LD in this episode, all of this stuff is kind of triggering her. (laughs) And because she is also very busy these days and does not have as much time to edit out all of our ranting, she's kind of taking a backseat a little bit this week, as I did last week. (laughs) In 1964, Simone changed record distributors from Colpix, an American company, to the Dutch Philips Records, which meant a change in the content of her recordings. She had always included songs in her repertoire that drew on her African-American heritage, such as Brown Baby by Oscar Brown and Zungo by Michael Olatunji. Both songs were on her album Nina at the Village Gate in 1962. But on her debut album for Philips in 1964, entitled Nina Simone in Concert, for the first time she addressed racial inequality in the United States in the song Mississippi Goddamn. The song was her response to the June 12, 1963 murder of Medgar Evers, who, if you don't know, um, was a civil rights activist and Mississippi's field secretary for the NAACP. Also along with that was the September 15, 1963 bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, that killed four young black girls and partially blinded a fifth. She said that it was, quote, like throwing 10 bullets back at them, becoming one of many other protest songs written by Simone over her career. The song was released as a single and was boycotted in some southern states. Promotional copies were smashed by a Carolina radio station and returned to Phillips. And just kind of a fair warning, this whole kind of next section is a lot about her activism. So if you're sensitive to it, or it brings up hard, hard things. I'm sorry, but this is the story. And these are truths of our past, and unfortunately, some of our present. And this is not something that I choose to gloss over. Simone later recalled how Mississippi Goddamn was her, quote, first civil rights song, and that the song came to her in a rush of fury, hatred, and determination. The song challenged the belief that race relations could change gradually and called for more immediate developments. I quote, me and my people are just about due, end quote. It was a key moment in her political radicalization. Her song, Old Jim Crow, on the same album addressed Jim Crow laws, which LD is going to talk about a little bit more. Yeah, the Jim Crow laws 
were from the late 19th century to pretty much the civil rights movement in the 1960s, a lot of southern states would implement laws of racial segregation that became known as Jim Crow laws. So that was kind of the by name for it. So like, you know, we have blue laws, which are alcoholic laws. So Mm -hmm. it was kind of what it was known by. It was basically to promote white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And so you would have your own bathroom you know if you are if you were african-american you would have your own bathroom your own water fountain you would have to sit at the back of the bus and and that's what the rosa parks right stem from was she refused to give up her seat on the bus to a, a, a white man and it got her into trouble and it's not it's not a proud moment in the south but but the jim crow laws were basically the segregation law and it was right. law you could go to prison for breaking them. Just to kind of summarize the the Jim Crow laws was the segregation of public schools, like public places. You could have a park that was segregated, public transportation, restrooms, restaurants, drinking fountains, churches, nightclubs. Basically, if you could separate people, it could be done under these laws. Basically, it was real bad. It sucks. It's a very tough subject, and it's something not a proud time in our history in America at all. Certainly not in the South, but it's important to address it. Sorry. It's <laughs> I was a, trying to find the right word. <laughs> well, it's it's important to know that like this this was part of the history. And again, we're not a political podcast. We no. are not going to get into it, but it's frightening to think that there was a time where this was accepted. Right. And also, again, I, this is not something that I can gloss over. This is a huge part of her story and her music. After Mississippi Goddamn, a civil rights message was the norm in Simone's recordings and became part of her concerts. Although she released some of her most popular songs at this time, like Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, Feeling Good, was a huge song, still is for her, I put a spell on you and Sinner Man. As her political activism rose, the rate of release of her music slowed. Simone performed and spoke at civil rights meetings such as the Selma to Montgomery marches. That was a huge, huge moment in the civil rights movement. Enormous. If you say Selma, you understand what the context is and where she's coming from and what she's fighting for. Like Malcolm X, which was actually who was actually her neighbor in Mount Vernon, New York. She supported black nationalism and advocated violent revolution rather than Martin Luther King's nonviolent approach. She hoped that African-Americans could use armed combat to form a separate state. Though she wrote in her autobi, though she wrote in her autobiography that she and her family regarded all races as equal. So she was angry and wanted a bigger show of action than just peaceful marches that didn't seem to be doing much. She had every right to be angry. But Simone's social commentary was not limited to the civil rights movement. The song For Women exposed the Eurocentric beauty standards imposed on black women in America as it explored the internalized dilemma of beauty that is experienced between four black women with skin tones ranging from light to dark. She explains in her autobiography that the purpose of the song was to inspire black women to define beauty and, I- and identity for themselves without the influence of societal impositions. 
1967, Simone moved record labels from Phillips to RCA Victor. She sang Blackish Blues written by her friend Harlem Renaissance leader Langston Hughes on her first RCA album, Nina Simone Sings the Blues. Fun fact. Simone's version of The House of the Rising Sun was featured on her 1967 album, Nina Simone Sings the Blues, but she recorded the song in 1961, and it was originally featured on her album, Nina at the Village Gate, in 1962. And if you're not familiar with this song, which I don't know how you're not familiar with this song, it was probably made most famous by a British band called The Animals in 1964. But it's actually, I think we should do a short set on this, because there's a really interesting history with this song. It's actually a traditional folk song that's also occasionally referred to as Rising Sun Blues, whose authorship is unknown. But it's said to have been known by miners as far back as 1905. And the oldest published version of the lyrics was printed by Robert Winslow Gordon in 1925 in a column entitled Old Songs That Men Have Sung in Adventure Magazine. On her 1967 album, Silk and Soul, she recorded Billy Taylor's I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free and Turning Point. So this is kind of, sorry, I fun facted over to House of the Rising Sun. We're getting back to her activism story and how her music was reflecting that at the time. The 1968 album, Nuff Said, contained live recordings from the Westbury Music Fair of April 7th, 1968, three days after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. She dedicated the performance to him and sang, Why, parentheses, the King of Love is Dead, a song written by her bass player, Gene Taylor. It's important to note here, too, that this album also contained the recording of Ain't Got No, I Got Life, which was a melody from the musical Hair that became a surprise hit for Simone, reaching number four on the UK singles chart. So she's kind of breaking in a little bit heavier on the UK side, completely by accident. <laughs> Getting back to her activism and, and everything that's going on in this time for her during this civil rights movement. Um, in 1969, she performed at the Harlem Cultural Festival in Harlem's Mount Morris Park. Simone credited her friend Lorraine Hansberry with cultivating her social and political consciousness, planting the seed for the provocative social commentary that became an expectation in Simone's repertoire. Upon Hansberry's passing, Simone and Weldon Irvine turned her unfinished play To Be Young, Gifted, and Black into a civil rights song of the same name, one of her more hopeful anthems. She performed the song live on the album Black Gold in 1970. A studio recording was released as a single, and renditions of the song have been recorded by Aretha Franklin on her 1972 album Young, Gifted, and Black and Donny Hathaway. When reflecting on this period, Nina wrote in her autobiography, I felt more alive than I feel now because I was needed and I could sing something to help my people. In an interview with Jet Magazine, Simone stated that her controversial song, Mississippi Goddamn, harmed her career. She claimed that the music industry punished her by boycotting her records. Hurt and disappointed, Simone left the U.S. 
in September 1970, flying to Barbados and expecting Stroud, her husband and manager, if you recall, to communicate with her when she had to perform again. However, Stroud interpreted Simone's sudden disappearance and the fact that she had left behind her wedding ring as an indication of a desire for divorce. And as her manager, Stroud was in charge of Simone's income. Mm, Should have kept the ring. When Simone returned to the United States, she learned that a warrant had been issued for her arrest for unpaid taxes as a protest against her country's involvement with the Vietnam War. Close friend singer Miriam Makeba then persuaded her to go to Liberia. When Simone relocated, she left her daughter Lisa in Mount Vernon. Lisa eventually reunited with Simone in Liberia, but according to Lisa, her mother was physically and mentally abusive. The abuse was so unbearable that Lisa became suicidal and moved back to New York to live with her father, Andrew Stroud. Simone recorded her last album for RCA, It Is Finished, in 1974. That year, on Human Kindness Day in Washington, D.C., more than 10,000 people paid tribute to her. Why don't we have that day? Right? We have freaking... Talk Like a Pirate Day. Talk Like a Pirate Day, National... Pancake Day? Pancake Day? Like, there's weird ones May the 4th? I mean, guys, pull it together. I say, if you're listening to this podcast right now, let's start a change.org to bring back National Human Kindness Day. I'm for this, and it should be 365 days a year. Human Kindness Day sounds like a good one. I like that one. Let's bring that back. Instead of, like, National Talk Backwards Day. Look, there is a change.org petition out there right now to get Nicolas Cage to come to my birthday party. Go sign it, everybody. Go sign We're it. We're trying to get 100 signatures. <laughs> I feel like we could probably get a good 3,000 signatures to bring back National Human Kindness Day. I like it. Or maybe it was just something that they were doing that day. I don't know. Let's, let's do it again. I think it's a good idea. I feel like everybody should do one nice thing for people every day. Like, you'll you'll feel, your soul will feel so much better if you just tell somebody you like their sweater, open a door for somebody, pick up a piece of trash. If we just all, we're all in this together, and if we just do something kind for one person every day, we will make this world a better place. It's true. Like Chippy says, we're all stuck on this island together. She received... Two honorary degrees in music and humanities in the mid-70s, one of them from Amherst College in 1977, and one from Malcolm X College, which I don't have that year. I couldn't find it. After these honors, she preferred to be called Dr. Nina Simone. Simone did not make another record until 1978, when she was persuaded to go into the recording studio by CTI record owner Creed Taylor. The result was the album Baltimore, which, while not a commercial success, was fairly well-received critically and marked a quiet artistic renaissance in Simone's recording output. Her choice of material retained its eclecticism, ranging from spiritual songs to Hall & Oates' Rich Girl. Four years later, Simone recorded Fodder on My Wings on a French label. During the 1980s, Simone performed regularly at Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in London, where she recorded the album Live at Ronnie Scott's in 1984, 
Although her early onstage style could be somewhat haughty and aloof, in later years, Simone particularly seemed to enjoy engaging with her audiences, sometimes by recounting humorous anecdotes related to her career and music and by soliciting requests. In 1987, the original 1958 recording of My Baby Just Cares For Me was used in a commercial for Chanel No. 5 perfume in Britain. This led to a re-release of the recording, which stormed to number four on the UK's NME singles chart, giving her a brief surge in popularity in the UK. Later, Simone moved to Europe, first living in Nyon, Switzerland, and in 1988, moving to Nijmegen and later Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Simone published her autobiography, I Put a Spell on You, in 1992. She continued to tour through the 1990s, but rarely traveled without an entourage. During the last decade of her life, Simone had sold more than one million records, making her a global catalog bestseller. In 1993, she settled near Aix-en-Provence in southern France. It should be said that Tracy looked up several pronunciations, and we pulled in my husband, who speaks French, and we got like six different choices, and I think she did a great job. Without she just pronounced that. So I'm doing my best. We are sorry to the French community. In that same year, her final album, A Single Woman, was released. During a 1998 performance in Newark, New Jersey, I finally got Nailed one. Nailed that pronunciation. Yes. Yes. She announced, if you're going... <laughs> I can't say anything now. She announced, if you're going to come see me again... You've got to come to France because I'm not coming back. Simone was a recipient of a Grammy Hall of Fame award in 2000 for her interpretation of I Loves You Porgy, which, as you'll remember from the beginning, is like her first kind of hit. In 2002, the city of Nijmegen, Netherlands, named a street after her as Nina Simone Street since she had lived there between 1988 and 1990. On April 19, 2003, Simone learned she would be awarded an honorary degree by the Curtis Institute of Music, the same music school that had refused to admit her as a student at the beginning of her career. I love that she got the last laugh on them. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. Turn me down. I'll become a worldwide success and... Your name won't be attached to it. A global catalog bestseller. Yeah. Okay. To be fair, not not hopping on the, the side of, you know, a possibly racist at the time college. I tried to get into the Asheville College of the Arts and they only allowed five people in every year in their freshman class. Well, and that's so, just it. So, I mean, we're saying this. We know it's hearsay. But it's her opinion, and so it's part of her story. Yeah, I'm saying so, that. I'm saying because that, yeah, that school, like they, like I said, they only accepted three people out of seventy-two applicants that year. Two days later, she died in her sleep at her home in Carrie-les-Rue, Boucher du Rhône, on April twenty-first, two thousand three. She had been suffering for several years from breast cancer. Her funeral service was attended by singers Miriam Makeba and Patti LaBelle, poet Sonia Sanchez, actors Ozzy Davis and Ruby Dee, and hundreds of others. Yeah, so Elton John was also at her funeral. Yeah. He actually sent her a floral arrangement with the message that 
said, you are the greatest and I love you. I don't know why that's just always stuck with me ever since I learned about it. It's just something I can't forget. I will say it seems like Elton John has a deep respect for a lot of artists. And when he does respect someone, he actually takes time out to show it. So for someone like Nina Simone, he sends the floral arrangement. For Princess Diana, he wrote her a song. You know, and for Marilyn Monroe, he wrote a song. So So that's really cool that Elton did that. That's nice. Simone's ashes were scattered in several African countries. She is survived by her daughter, Lisa Celeste Stroud, an actress and singer who took the stage name Simone and who has appeared on Broadway in Aida. Right? Is that how you say that? Yes, it is Aida. I've seen Aida. It's interesting that she would be in Aida. Aida is actually the story of uh, Nubia, and a Nubian princess is basically her city is raided by the Egyptians, and she's captured, and she becomes the hero's future wife's slave. Oh. And he ends up falling in love with her, but she has also befriended her master, mistress, and uh, it's a beautiful story. And the music... Spoiler alert. The music is actually by Elton John. Oh, hey, there you go. Makes sense then. Yeah. Nina Simone, <laughs> like knowing knowing the the track that Nina was on with her activism for her daughter to do a play that speaks so strongly to the African community. Yeah. Throughout her career, and, and I'm sorry, I'm going to jump a little bit around. Like we try to keep it as close to chronological as possible. However, the gravity of her work during the civil rights era I felt was important that I didn't want to break away too much on her other work that she was doing at the time. So I'm going to kind of jump to that now. So throughout her career, Simone assembled a collection of songs that would later become standards in her repertoire and many other people's repertoire, honestly. Some were songs that she wrote for herself, while others were new arrangements of other standards and others had been written especially for her. Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, Feeling Good, and Sinner Man have remained popular in terms of covers, sample usage, and its use on soundtracks for various movies, TV series, and video games. Sinner Man has been featured in the TV series Scrubs, Person of Interest, The Blacklist, Sherlock, The Umbrella Academy, Vinyl, and Lucifer, as well as in movies such as The Thomas Crown Affair, Miami Vice, and Inland Empire. And sampled by artists such as Talib Kweli and Timbaland. The song Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood was sampled by Devo Springsteen on Misunderstood from Common's 2007 album Finding Forever. And by little known producers Rodney and Musa for the song Don't Get It on Lil Wayne's 2008 album The Carter Three. Sea Line Women was sampled by Kanye West for Bad News on his album. 808s and Heartbreak, the 1965 rendition of Strange Fruit, which was originally recorded by Billie Holiday, was sampled by Kanye West for Blood on the Leaves on his album Yeezus. The 1968 album Nuff Said contained the recording of Ain't Got No, I Got Life, which is a medley from the musical Hair that became a surprise hit for Simone, reaching number, number four on the UK singles chart. This song 
returned to the UK top 30 in a remixed version by Groovefinder in 2006. Being the resident musical genius that I am, Hair, I feel like, spawned a lot of amazing songs because Hair also had uh, the Aquarius medley, Let the Sunshine Ooh, In. I actually liked that one. Yeah, that's the fifth dimension. I, well, I actually know that one. Let's <clears throat> put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> and at the time, it was very topical because it, they were actually moving into the age of Aquarius. So there you go. That's some little knowledge. This is the dawning of the age of in 2009, Nina Simone was inducted into the North Carolina Music Hall of Fame. And in 2010, a statue in her honor was erected on Trade Street in her native Tryon, North Carolina. Simone's bearing and stage presence earned her the title The High Priestess of Soul. She was a piano player, singer, and performer separately and simultaneously. As a composer and arranger, Simone moved from gospel to blues, jazz, and folk and to numbers with European classical styling. On stage, she incorporated monologues and dialogues with the audience into the program and often used silence as a musical element. Throughout most of her life and recording career, she was accompanied by percussionist Leopoldo Fleming and guitarist and musical director Al Shackman. Simone is regarded as one of the most influential recording artists of the 20th century. According to Ricky Vincent, she was a pioneering musician whose career was characterized by, by, quote, fits of outrage and improvisational genius. In naming Simone the 29th greatest singer of all time, Rolling Stone wrote that, quote, her honey-coated, slightly adenoidal cry was one of the most affecting voices of the civil rights movement. While making note of her ability to, to quote, belt barroom blues, croon cabaret, and explore jazz, sometimes all on a single record. Simone has received four career Grammy Award nominations, two during her lifetime and two posthumously. In 1968, she received her first nomination for Best Female R&B Vocal Performance for the track, parentheses, You'll Go to Hell, from Silk and Soul. The award went to Respect by Aretha Franklin. That was, I'm sorry, that was a hard year. <laughs> if you're against Aretha Franklin, that's a hard year. That is a hard year. But it, wait, it gets better. Simone garnered a second nomination in the category in 1971 for her Black Gold album when she again lost to Franklin for Don't Play That Song, parenthesis, You Lied. Ironically, Franklin would again win for her cover of Simone's Young, Gifted, and Black two years later in the same category from which Simone's Black Gold album was nominated and features... The original version of the song. Oh man! <laughs> so that's um, that's harsh. That's a that's a rough blow right there. Ow! In 2016, Simone posthumously received a nomination for Best Music Film for the Netflix documentary What Happened, Miss Simone. And in 2018, she received a nomination for Best Rap Song as a songwriter for Jay Z's The Story of OJ from his 444 album which contained a sample of Four Women by Nina Simone. So even today, she is incredibly influential to some of the biggest names in music. Oh, yeah. Well, because then also last year, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by fellow R&B artist Mary J. Blige. And then this year, 
2019, Mississippi Goddamn was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Recording Registry for being, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. That That is beyond awesome. Yeah. I, I love that. So that. she's still receiving these accolades and these honors. I mean, so if you kind of heard rumblings a few years back, about 14 years ago, they had made plans to make a biographical film in 2005, which was to be based on Nina Simone's autobiography, I Put a Spell on You, and to focus on her relationship in later life with her assistant, Clifton Henderson, who died in 2006. Nina Simone's daughter, Simone Kelly, has since refuted the existence of a romantic relationship between Simone and Henderson on account of his homosexuality. Cynthia Mort, screenwriter of Will and Grace and Roseanne, has written the screenplay and directed the 2016 film Nina, which controversially starred Zoe Saldana in the role. When speaking of the film, the whole controversy about that movie was because they didn't think that Zoe Saldana was black enough and they actually darkened her skin tone, which people had likened to blackface, correct? I think that was a big part of it. But you were trying to make the point that her song basically well, stated that point, right? I know it's strange to come out of our mouths when we say this, but I was watching America's Next Top Model and Tyra said something that kind of struck me, which was as an African-American, they're not only comparing themselves to, you know, Caucasian women or Asian women or Latin women, they're comparing themselves to other African-Americans based on their skin tone. And so they're, they're under this constant scrutiny that they're not black enough or they're too black. So they're, they always feel like they're being compared to someone else at all times. Which I just find, I mean, I feel like it's relevant, but it also like it's, I find it heartbreaking, but I also think that it's relevant to this discussion because one of Nina Simone's big songs was the song for women. And that's kind of the, what the song is all about, you know, is four different black women from skin tones, light to dark from their points of view and Look, speaking on that, on those standards of beauty. We, the irony of two Caucasian women trying to put ourselves in the shoes of two African-Americans is not lost on us at all. We, <laughs> we know that, like we know that this is not our place to talk about this and it's never our intention to, upset anyone and so we do try to put ourselves in the shoes of these these people these artists and to know where they're coming from because we do spend a lot of time with them as we do in the research on it and again this is something we'd like to have a dialogue about because we feel like it's important if we understand different points of view mm -hmm. and and I love hearing different points of view but I think <laughs> I think even now in Hollywood we do have this problem where we whitewash roles where you have Scarlett Johansson playing a character from a manga. We have right. Emma Stone in Aloha. Was that? The, oh, why I'm asking you about? Why movies. are you asking me about films? <laughs> but but she was supposed to be half Japanese in that film, and so I I get it. They had Anthony Hopkins playing an African American in The Human Stain. I mean, you know. I mean, we could go. We could go to one of my favorites, which I'm is just all Robert, kinds of wrong. Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder. 
Well, that I think was intentional, honestly. <laughs> that was intentional, but I was going to say Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh my God. I somehow blocked that from <laughs> my mind. Can we talk about that for a minute? I'd rather we didn't. Let's not. It's even he looked back and he was like, oh God, I'm so sorry. Yeah. But Hollywood does have this problem. And I think this is, this is probably a topic for a different podcast. In 2015, two documentary features about Simone's life and music were released. The first which is one that I kind of mentioned briefly earlier, was What Happened Miss Simone was directed by Liz Garbus and was produced in cooperation with Simone's estate and her daughter, who also served as the film's executive producer. And then I, I did check because it was on my queue. And so I went back and it's actually still on Netflix if you, if you want to check that out. Yes, it is. The film was produced as a counterpoint to the unauthorized Cynthia Mort film and featured previously unreleased archival footage. And actually something of note is that among that archival footage is footage of her singing Mississippi Goddamn for 40,000 marchers at the end of the Selma to Montgomery marches. The documentary premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in January 2015 and was distributed by Netflix on June 26, 2015. It was nominated for a 2016 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. And again, as we said, it is still up on Netflix if you're interested in taking a look at that. The second documentary, because I mentioned there was two, is entitled The Amazing Nina Simone. And it's an independent film written and directed by documentary filmmaker Jeff L. Lieberman and was released in more than 100 cinemas in 2015. The director initially consulted with Simone's daughter before going the independent route and instead worked closely with Simone's siblings, predominantly Sam Wayman. The film debuted in cinemas in October 2015 and has since played more than 100 theaters in 10 countries. There are also a few other documentaries, several biographies, besides her own autobiography, which was, again, for reference, entitled I Put a Spell on You, and even a play about this musical icon. And I hate to go back and be, and take us back to a little bit of a downer here. This podcast never ends on a really happy note. Sometimes we throw fun facts at the end and it's okay. Despite all of the accolades, her musical genius, her undeniable presence, and tireless work as an activist, there was a darker side to Miss Simone. She was diagnosed with bipolar disorder in the late 1980s. According to a biographer, Simone took medication for, for a condition from the mid-1960s onward, although this was supposedly only known to a small group of intimates. Known for her temper and frequent outbursts, in 1985, Simone fired a gun at a record company executive, whom she accused of stealing royalties. Simone said that she, quote, tried to kill him, but missed. Well, were you saying that her daughter, Lisa, endured so much abuse from her that she moved? And she ended up moving back with her dad, yeah. Who was abusive to Nina. Right. What, is, what a vicious cycle. Vicious, vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. In 1995, she shot and wounded her neighbor's son with an air gun after the boy's laughter disturbed her concentration. All of this was kept out of public view for many years until about 2004 when a biography entitled Break Down and Let It All Out, written by Sylvia Hampton and David Nathan, was published posthumously. 
Singer-songwriter Janice Ian, a one-time friend of Simone's, expressed in her own autobiography, Society's Child, My Autobiography, two instances to illustrate Simone's volatility. One incident in which she forced a shoe store cashier at gunpoint to take back a pair of sandals she'd already worn, and another in which Simone demanded a royalty payment from Ian herself as an exchange for having recorded one of Ian's songs and then ripped a payphone out of its wall when she refused. Wow. Yeah. There's a, a big movement now to be open about mental health and mental issues and, and the way to kind of fix yourself. What's the word I'm yeah. looking for? It's, it's actually become a lot more common now for us to be open about mental health issues. I can sit here and say I actually suffer clinically from a mental disorder which is obsessive compulsiveness. And 50 years ago, I couldn't say that. I couldn't tell you I take Xanax so that I don't break my teeth because of the anxiety that I suffer from. And I think if Nina was an up-and-coming artist now, she could have been more open about being bipolar. Her mental, her mental stability may be keyed into her activism, her passion, her drive. It was a part of her story, but it was not all of her story. You know, basically, in the end, what I'm going to take away from this is how incredible Nina was. Well, yeah, she's still been cited as an influence for countless musicians, including myself. And her music is featured in films and TV shows. Her music is still everywhere, guys. She was an undeniable force for better or worse, and her presence will be felt for generations to come. And that, for me, is the story. Yeah, I had to bring it down a little bit with the mental health issues that she fought with, but that's not her full story. It's a part of it. And like you said, you know, it's just part of it. I'd like to close in, a, in an LD fashion Ooh. with a quote. Not from the artist herself, but from another one of her contemporaries. In 1970, Maya Angelou wrote, She is loved or feared, adored or disliked. But few who have met her music or glimpsed her soul react with moderation. And I thought that was kind of the perfect quote to kind of sum up that story and, and Nina herself. She wrote it about Nina, obviously. Well, first of all, Thank you for that. That was such a good episode. I didn't know. I knew Nina's music. I didn't know anything about her. And mm. I love it when we do episodes like this because I get to learn about these amazing eclectic souls that, that brought us so much joy and still do and bring us this inspiration. And so well done. Thank you. I mean, I never claimed to know Nina Simone all that well. But that was why I wanted to pick her because I'm like, well, this has been a great experience overall of learning all this stuff. Like, let me pick somebody that I've really that has really inspired me throughout the years and who I really enjoy listening to the music of. And here you go. I learned this whole other thing that I had no idea about. Yeah. And the next episode that we're doing is a deep dive into the life of Bobby Fuller, who I grew up thinking was a one hit wonder. And so... In my research so far, he had been making music since he was like six. Yeah. So 
I'm really looking forward to that episode. Well, and that's a really intriguing story that you teased me on earlier, too. So I know. hopefully, uh, I can't wait. It's, I can't wait. It's actually a really deep mystery. And so I'm I'm looking forward to, to that episode. But I think that about does it for this episode. Yeah. So thank you guys so much for checking us out. Check us out next Saturday when I do the episode on Bobby Fuller and his mysterious death. Please, guys, make sure to drop us a rating in the iTunes store. It really helps us out. And reviews. Reviews. We would love reviews. Tell us what we're doing right. Tell us what we're doing wrong. If you leave a one-star review, make sure you tell us why. Yeah. I mean, we want to know. We, we can't get better if we don't know. If you would like to donate to the show, we have our Patreon at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. Do we still have slots left if you donate at we the do $5 a, level? Yep, we do have a couple slots left. If you uh, if you donate at the $5 level, you will get to send us your top three choices for artists, and then we will pick one, and either me or TJ will do the episode for you. So it's a great way to either put someone in our orbit that we might not be thinking of, or it could be fast-tracking one of our favorite artists, like last week where... Amanda got to fast track Sublime, and I had a blast doing that episode. So, well, in the week before, I got to do Roy Clark for Carrie. Yeah, so which was awesome. And we did. We who else did we do? Um, we did the very like our very oh the very first one, very first Chris one. Cornell for Chris Cornell, yeah for Andrea. Yeah. So if you guys want to get on that, we do have a couple slots left at the five dollar level. We're also still running our ratings and review contest. Which basically, if you leave us the best review on iTunes, we will pick it and you can choose any of the episodes that we have done so far and we will send you our show notes on that. So, uh, yeah, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can find us on Twitter at <laughs> rock and roll LT. Our Facebook is rock and roll heaven pod. Our Instagram is rock and roll heaven LT. I'm still not saying our website. But uh, you can also reach out to us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com with any questions, comments, suggestions, concerns, corrections. <laughs> Actually, I do want to give a quick shout out um, to the nutritionist who actually sent me a fantastic email about Karen Carpenter. And so if uh, she emails me again and gives me permission... I can do maybe a little update on that. Oh, great. It was a really interesting email, and it was very eye-opening, and I really appreciated it. So thank you. Yeah, that was a good one. Um, other than that, I think that's about it. You guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Keep rocking in the free world. TJ, yes. I'll see you in like 10 hours. Yeah, <laughs> but right now it's time to go to night. So from all of us here at Rockdown, to all of you out there in Radio Land. Just remember, the light at the end of the tunnel may be you. Good night, everybody. Where's that from? I know that. It's from Aerosmith. That, I'm such an idiot. I'm like, wait, where do I know that it's from? your favorite band. I know, but that's why immediately when you started saying that, I was like, wait, I know this. Where is this from? Okay, good night, guys. Uh, okay. Bye. Bye.
It's a new life for me, yeah. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me. Fly out in the sun, you know what I mean, don't you know? Butterflies all having fun, you know what I mean? Sleep in peace when day is done, that's what I mean. And this old world is a new world and a bold world for me. achieve the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. 
Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.